there are intersection points between what I do and what they do. And so that was an incredible learning experience, which I think makes me more strategic in, in what I choose to do in terms of the likely impact that it will have. And so the reward there is like, I, I learned a ton there and it actually ended up turning into a now 10 years of work foundation and NSF funding. I had no funding to do that when I started. Today, we welcome to the show, Emily Bernhardt, who is professor of biology at Duke University. She's an ecosystem ecologist and a biogeochemist who's really interested in tracking elements through ecological systems. And I met her because some of the ecological systems she was testing them in were in the Center for the Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology, where um, I work, as I've mentioned on the show before, and Emily was one of the leading PIs to put the center together. I really found in interacting with her over the years, but especially coming through in this conversation that she just has this really nice mix of objectively impressive and honest and humble and funny that just makes it very easy to learn from her. So we were thrilled to have her join us for a great conversation. As you know, at Helium Podcast, we want early career researchers to both land their faculty position and master their faculty position. And we wanted everyone in our audience to be able to hear Emily today because she has a lot of great insights about how to run your group, how to get the most effectiveness out of your group members, talking about a particular exercise that I don't want to spoil called the eat the frog exercise, which I think is awesome. And also talking about prioritizing her own professional joy. And then in terms of time management, thinking about leaving enough space So when opportunities, like key opportunities in your careers arise, that you can take advantage of those opportunities when when they come up. Yeah, I agree, Matt. Emily really brought a mix of that kind of pragmatic advice that we love so much here, but also kind of big picture, making it easier thinking of just how do you know if you're happy more than half the time? And how do you, you know, just take some moments to have gratitude for the great career that this can be. So uh, it's a real treat to be able to share this chat with others. Yeah, I think that one lesson I took from this is that she's really emphasizing that this kind of career is possible. It, It feels impossible sometimes from the outside if you haven't been in the career, but she's saying, if you're motivated to do this, come in and try academia because she made it work and she talks about how she made it work for her. So enjoy this episode with Emily Bernhardt. Today, we're welcoming to the podcast, Emily Bernhardt, who is professor of biology at Duke University. Welcome, Emily. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I've I've been really looking forward to this conversation because just personally, I've learned a lot from you um, over the years being part of the Center for Environmental Implications of Nanotechnology together. I always run out of air before I run out of words in that name because it's so long. Um, But Emily and I have worked together in Saint. And um, so I have a lot of different things that that I would love to hear from you about that resonate a lot with what Matt and I talk about often. And one thing is that you've often mentioned that you feel that the true output of an academic career is the creation of scholars. And so I'm curious if you want to talk about that and just, you know, dig into whether this is something you were taught or something you gleaned over the time of being a professor or how did you come to appreciate this? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it's funny because I actually just had this conversation with a, a long-term tech in my lab who's now getting a master's and we were talking through, you know, kind of he's thinking through his first papers and 
realizing there was a lot of stuff that it wasn't clear which papers was going to go in. And it gave us a chance to sort of step back and say, I was saying to him, you know, actually, you think about it. There's lots of things that don't tell a great story in a paper, but have really made you a better scientist. And that's a really important part of what you're doing. So we tend to be really product focused, like create a paper, create a, create a technology, uh, create a talk. And sometimes we forget to step back and make sure that we're actually holistically becoming a better scholar over time. In the end, sometimes the things that failed teach you more than the things that worked. And they become a part of the conversations that you're able to have and the, the, the questions you're able to ask in the future. And it's, it's really helpful if you can start to celebrate those without realize without them having a tangible thing you can touch when they're, when they're done. I mean, I feel that's such a powerful thing because it, just even you talking about mentoring somebody that's a long time tech toward a path that's not straight to professorship, right? So somebody's been adding value to the knowledge body that you're collectively producing and then seeing what's the right trajectory for them. I mean, I, I like that the first example you had wasn't producing a professor, like you're seeing scholars and producing people who make knowledge on a really broad scale. Yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, everybody has something to contribute. And I think each time you transition into a new role, you have to shift the way that you're thinking to sort of fit that new role. And it's a, it's a big transition from being a tech to being a graduate student, being a master's student to being a PhD student, being a PhD student or master's student to whatever else you might do afterwards, right? And so thinking through how to prepare yourself for that holistically, I think is a is kind of a fun challenge as a mentor, but also, of course, as the person trying to target wherever it is that you're going. And actually, I want to go back to something that you said, just talking about celebration. So, I mean, this is a little bit off topic from what we talked about before the show started, but I wonder how maybe you, you, you talked about intentionally celebrating things. How do you build celebration into your, into your lab, into the way that you're training people? Well, I was, I was going to say, I just, uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I got was from a very good friend of mine. Who's one of the most productive scientists I know. He recommended this book to me called uh, Eat Your Frog. It's a kind of a stupid self-help book. I shouldn't say it's a stupid book because it was very influential, but it's like a really short, easy read. And, it, and the point is something really obvious, which is that you shouldn't procrastinate on those things that are driving you crazy that you know, if you'll finish them, you'll feel really so much better. They could be just simple and annoying tasks, or they could be just making that final set of analyses with this data sets that you hate or whatever. But it's called Eat Your Frog because it's supposed to be based on this quote from Mark Twain, which um, is, uh, if it's your job every day to eat a frog, you should do it first thing in the morning. <laughs> and if it's your job every day to eat two frogs, you should eat the ugliest one first. So my lab has adopted this as our, motto, as our, as our lab quote, and our motto is that we eat frogs together. And so actually, we just had lab meeting an hour ago, and we always start every lab meeting with every person going around and saying what... Did they eat their frog from last week? And we keep a we keep a spreadsheet. So everybody said, "Here's what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do by next week." And then and then we all go around and we say, "Did you do it or not?" And if you did do it, we all celebrate, yay! And if you didn't do it, we all are like, "Oh, that's too bad. Like, how can we help you do it?" Right? And it's great. It's just a really great way of us all kind of recognizing that there's lots of hard things to do and that there's little successes every week and there's little failures every week and that we're kind of all in it together and. uh it's awesome. I, I would say it's 
adopting that, we've been doing it for about two and a half years now, has completely kind of changed the dynamic in the lab. It was already good, but something about that made it really more team spirited and um, really awesome. I I'm going to probably do that in my family now. We we already do like rosebud thorn at the dinner table, like a good thing, something you look forward to, and then something that was stinky about the day. But, but the eat your frog thing is perfect because not only does it kind of help with accountability to the whole group and have something to say, but it really kind of instates yourself as your own authority figure, which is what you're trying to do. It, uh, with growing a scholar. It's just like, okay, how do you tell yourself what's the hard thing that you need to get out of the way? Yeah. And we do a little counseling with each other too. Like at this point, if somebody sets a goal, that's like, I'm going to write a, I'm going to write a paper next week. We're all like, uh, it's kind of a big goal. You know, can scale it down to like, let's make sure it's something that you have a good chance of accomplishing. What's the piece of the paper you're going to get done. So it's a little bit also to help us kind of goal set, um, more appropriately so that you can have more successes. You know, um, I think a lot of times we kind of approach, you know, if your goal is to write a dissertation or like get tenure, it's not, it's going to take you a really long time to do that. And you need some successes on the way for sure. Yeah. And I think scaling the timing of that, actually, I remember a time, maybe I was interviewing with you, Emily, for the job um, at Duke that I've been in for the last like seven years. And we were talking about the differences of different fields. And one thing that you said that has stuck with me over the time has been that in academia, you know, your success is average over longer time periods. So uh, there, you know, maybe there's it's quarterly time periods in industry or some other metric in a consultancy or something. But, you know, you're going to have to rise to whatever occasion is there. But in academia, there are longer time periods. So you have to build in things that are going to help you make sure you keep your averages up over, over on a daily basis to add up to whatever it is that you want to accomplish in the longer term. Well, and I might put that, in, I mean, that is true. I think it's more just if, if you're the hurdle that you're facing is just such a big long-term one. If you don't have any intermediate steps you can celebrate, it's a long slog for sure. Yeah. I think this is a, a, a good transition into something else we wanted to ask you about being pulled in so many directions, right? So as a, as a faculty member, not only do you need to decide what your hardest thing of the day, what your frog is, and I, I'm loving the frog and the, and I actually never read that book, but I've heard that, heard that quote before. That's, that's a great quote. And talking about, we've talked with several of our other guests about how they're pulled in many different directions and setting priorities. So we wondered kind of what your approach, aside from the frog approach, was to setting your priorities and what you give your time to. I, I would say um, this is probably the thing that I'm the worst at because I, I really like all of the parts of my job. Um, and if I, I, I bet I would be so good at each of them if I only had to do one of them and you are constantly having to do just good enough. And I think that's really hard. Most people that get a PhD and, and go into careers that require a PhD are probably pretty type A and want to do everything perfectly. And so deciding what's enough is a really big part of being able to make a career out of being a scholar in what, in whatever venue that ends up being. And, uh, I think that's constantly hard. There's sort of overcome by choices and some things have to, some things you have to say no to, uh, and some things you have to do just okay in order to make space to do the things you're really passionate about really, really well. And I, 
I have been sort of really trying, I won't say I'm doing it yet, but I'm aiming towards doing things that bring me professional joy is my goal. Like what are the parts of my job that like give a ton of energy back, make me feel fulfilled where I feel like I'm doing something, I'm doing work that people care about. And I'm, I'm aiming all the time to maximize that. You can't always, I mean, there's just boring things that have to be done in any job. Right. But I'm trying to spend as much time doing the things that really, that I really love doing um, as I possibly can. That is really a, a perfect kind of lead into the other thing we wanted to ask you is really just how to advise people. How could they intentionally align what they're working on with questions they find fascinating? So I think in, you might have been also talking kind of on a broader scale, like task types. Like, do you find teaching really rewarding or mentoring versus, you know, filling out all of the grants requirements for paperwork to upload the grant? Probably no one's going to choose that particular task, but... Um, <laughs> I do not love that part of my job. I lied. <laughs> yeah, yeah there are some things like, yeah. Yeah, you know, and then there's, that's the frog maybe that day and, and yeah. you go and do it. But, um, but I, I feel like early on, um, the things that you're interested in and that find fascinating and might spark professional joy in your life could change over time. So, um, do you have advice for how people can best position themselves? And it sounds like from what you're saying, it could be some internal work on how to set your decision, you know, compass, and then some external work on how to say no, or I'm sorry, not this time to people, you know, how can you be in a position to work on truly impactful, interesting things and not set yourself up to be unable to take those opportunities when they come? Yeah, it's really hard to like, in part, you kind of need to reserve enough space or enough, enough flexibility so that when opportunities to do something that you really care passionately about arise, you can take advantage of them. And sometimes you just have to do it. So I would say for me in my career, one example of that is I got pulled into some, uh, some court cases about the issue of mountaintop removal coal mining. And, and it was pre-tenure and it was an enormous time investment. And it was kind of you know, I was convinced to do it by a mentor and it ended up being one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my career. It really changed the way I think about the kinds of science that I do and the kinds of ways I present my science and the role that science can play in the public sphere. And I'm so glad I did it. So sometimes I think you have to just overload because the opportunity to learn something new is really, uh, is really important and special and may not recur. And, um, and other times I think it's like, letting go of things that aren't fun. And I, and that could be because the research just isn't like, you don't feel excited when you're thinking about it or because the people that you're working with, even on a really exciting idea, can I say this are a pain in the ass? Like, I mean, either way, like it's just life short to work with people that are hard to, to deal with or on questions that just aren't yielding any interesting insights. And so at some point you got to cut your losses and say, this isn't, this isn't the best use of my time. That's such Rich advice, especially what you were talking about earlier, people who go into this field, well, field, gigantic style of using your life, right? It's all the fields, but, <laughs> um, but are often people who want to achieve, right? And people who don't want to quit and stick with it. And so recategorizing the kind of changing your trajectory out of a failure or a quit bin in your mind and into, uh, no, this is a, a, 
you know, sloughing off the old skin. This is important. I need to let it go. I think is some of the hardest stuff people have to do. Like just tell themselves it's not quitting. It's, it's re-choosing, right? Yeah. It, that's a really good way to put it. It's not that I'm, it's not that I'm quitting. It's that I'm choosing to invest my time elsewhere. You know, bring things to a close and don't continue to pursue them. And I think, you know, one, one, you were talking about sort of tricks for choosing. One thing that I think is really important, some advice that I got, um, maybe a little bit later than I wish I had gotten it was to sort of set a, both a financial and a time price tag on getting engaged in projects. So, you know, when you first start your career, you're kind of like opportunity limited, but that changes really fast. And then all of a sudden you've got people asking you to do things and, and not enough time. So time becomes limiting really fast and being able to say, I would love to be involved in that, but in order to be involved in that, I need, I would need this level of resources to do what I think you want. And otherwise I can't really invest a significant portion of my time. So I think kind of valuing your own time and recognizing that I can't actually do the kind of job that I would be proud of unless there's a substantial contribution of, of, not necessarily money for me, usually money for a student or for a postdoc or someone who can actually help make sure the work gets done. That's a kind of a, a good threshold to use for whether this is something that's really going to become a part of, of your professional life. So I think that that's a good trick. If you're out there in our audience and you're looking for a faculty position, but you're feeling overwhelmed and stressed by the whole process, we've actually taken some of the best lessons from this podcast and from our own personal experience and put it into a six-week email course where you get one email a week for six weeks with some tasks that you can do to set yourself up to have success in your search for a faculty position. This course can be found at www.teamhelium.co slash FPP course. Again, if you're searching for a faculty position, we have a free course for you. That is at teamhelium.co slash FPP C-O-U-R-S-E. Thanks. And back to the show. I actually want to go back to something you said about the, you, you said that there was a time in your career where the mountaintop removal issue came up and that you had a mentor convince you to, to actually pursue this. Could you put yourself back in your shoes back then and, and talk maybe a little bit about the pros and the cons that you were weighing at the time? And maybe that would help some of our listeners who might face a similar situation sometime in the future. Just think about how you ultimately made that decision yeah, I mean, absolutely. I actually gave a talk about this like five years ago. I won this early career award and I gave a talk about um, how do you decide when something falls in your lap, whether or not to go for it or not. And at the time, it was a little bit scary, not only because it you know, it was being a scientist in a courtroom, which people have pretty strong opinions about whether or not you should do that. And it was on, you know, a pretty substantial energy issue that had uh, the potential to have a lot of press. And it was going up against, a, a, you know, energy lawyers and trying to describe the science in the courtroom. And so it certainly wasn't something that you could see leading to any kind of pr- measurable professional outcome. It was purely about like, you know, it's unbelievable that decisions are being made where there's no scientist in the room providing any information. So I want to be there and advocate for science. 
and I, and I, I took that risk and it felt like a huge risk and I was doing before tenure and I didn't really ask for any advice from the people who would be in charge of my tenure case. Um, but I did talk to my PhD advisors and my postdoc advisors and they are all themselves quite active at that interface and they convinced me to go for it. And then in the end, I just told you, I, I, I won an, a major award for doing it. So there are actually rewards for sort of engaging in that kind of behavior. And I think the more you just do it and learn from it and share it with people, it actually ends up, I mean, I think it makes you a better, a better scholar, a better scientist for sure. So I think the risk is worth it. Now, I guess if it would be different if I would have been like brand new in my career and I ended up going and spending all of my time doing that. And I didn't do the very basic things that you have to do to be able to stay in your job. So you have to kind of keep that baseline going while still seizing opportunities. Definitely. Definitely. I, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, thinking about the engineers, right? They want to make it a difference. They want to make an impact in the world. Of course, the scientists and thinking about, how science affects society, right? And walking that line is walking that line can be quite precarious because sometimes you're not rewarded for some of those things in terms of the, the, the classic metrics of publications and, and other incitations and other things like that. So I just wanted to get your take on that from when you were back then. Yeah. Well, maybe that goes back to the very first thing you were talking about, right? Like the rewards are, personal satisfaction of feeling like you did something really important, right? Like you taught a federal district court judge a whole bunch about biogeochemistry and watershed science and land use change, right? And that actually was really rewarding and interesting to see that science end up in a, you know, a a court brief. It's pretty cool. Um, And then to see the way science got used in the courtroom or misused and, you know, selectively quoted, boy, did that make me think pretty hard about the way I phrase things in my papers. Um, and just, just also recognizing like, yeah, I want to, of course, I want to change the world. I'm an environmental scientist. I think we all come into it that way and recognizing that if I don't know the policy arena in which my science is going to get interpreted, I'm probably not targeting my science very well to have an impact at that interface. And that actually I have a lot to learn from, uh, environmental law scholars about, where there are intersection points between what I do and what they do. And so that was an incredible learning experience, which I think makes me more strategic in in what I choose to do in terms of the likely impact that it will have. And so the reward there is like, I I learned a ton there and it actually ended up turning into now 10 years of work foundation and NSF funding. I had no funding to do that when I started because all these questions came up and I was like, Oh, we can have impact here. And so it, turned into a, a pretty important professional trajectory for me would what started and seemed like a distraction. So you just don't know, I guess. You know, I love about that message that I think that kind of taps into what people maybe at the beginning of their research career would hope can be the driver, but maybe suspect cynically won't be allowed to stay the driver, right? So you're saying, okay, I made this decision because this is what would have the biggest impact. And, you know, I'm distilling knowledge and and putting in the hands of a person that can use it to make a decision that impacts the world. And then, you know, the further implication that you figured out, okay, there are times when I could partner up with somebody else that can help with this rich context that I need to really use the science in the best way. And, what I hear you saying is that that turned out to be a good compass to follow 
instead of a compass of, you know, well, what's the more surefire way of getting a certain dollar amount of funding by a certain time period? And not like you don't, that you don't have to care about those things, but that sometimes listening to your gut on where can I matter? Is it, is it a good gut to listen to? I think that's true. And I also, I have to say, like, I definitely toyed briefly. I'd be like, maybe should I, could, I should go to law school. This is pretty fun. I think it's also s- sort of valuable to, to realize you could use your skills in a lot of different ways. I actually would recommend anybody with a PhD who's in the academy to always have a backup job in their pocket. That they could leave the academy for immediately to go do. And just to know you have that. Because I think we get a little stuck in a track, you know, and then you... You know, we all, I think most people go into environmental science or environmental engineering because they want to change the world. And then we get stuck in this uh, kind of value chain that may actually take us away from doing that. I think that's just a rephrasing of what you just said, Christine. And that instead, if we thought more holistically about impact as being what we originally came to this field to do, I think we'd make different decisions. We might arrive at the same CV. I mean, the same metrics of the CV but an entirely different actual impact outside of the academy. And I guess that to me seems, I like to think about kind of multidimensional impact. Um, it's so much more, so much more satisfying, right? Yeah. I mean, you're talking about people that have gone into academia, but there are certainly those that are intimidated by the academic trajectory as well. And so we kind of wanted to ask you about people that think that, the job is too competitive or the personal costs are too high. And we know this vibe, we've heard this from some of our other guests that, you know, it dissuades some of their graduate students from going into academia at all. So what would you say to people that maybe are on that fence and saying, you know what, maybe the the personal costs are too much or something, something along those, that line of argument in terms of persuading those those really smart people out there that they need to join the, the ranks of academia? Well, I would, first of all, I would not say that really smart people need to join the ranks. I mean, hopefully smart people will come into academia, but there are lots and lots of ways for really smart people to contribute as scholars in the you know, of, course, of, of, of science. And engineering. But I do think that my job is pretty awesome. And I should preface it by saying I have two kids and I am married to another academic. And I feel like at this point, we both have tenure, like, it's incredible. We're incredibly lucky. And like, what an amazing job. I have really no boss. And every day I get to go think about whatever I want with a whole bunch of brilliant people. I think it's really cool that I have collaborators who are, you know, freshman undergraduates doing their first independent project all the way up to my 85 year old PhD advisor that I still work with. You know, it's, and I get to travel all over the world to talk with these great people that I have become close friends and collaborators with. I mean, it's amazing. And I have a lot of friends outside of the academy. I think that's important for realizing how good we have it. Because I think academics tend to get in little knots where they only talk to other academics and just complain about grant, like grant <laughs> auditing and things like that. And, you know, and I think we forget how amazing our job is. And it is kind of all consuming, but that's partly because we're passionate about it. Right. So I think the job is as bad as you make it or as good as you make it. And I'm not going to say there aren't days I'm like exhausted by my job, but most days I have a pretty good time. And that's my goal is like at least, at least half the time I need to feel like I had a good day. 
And at some point, if it falls below that, then I really need to think about doing something else. You know, I I can't tell you how um, interesting and helpful it is to just hear. Of course, we're going to love the quantification, right? We can't help it. But like for saying half the time, yeah. I should I, I should feel like I had a good day and really having that perspective. I mean, the fact that you can have friends that aren't academics says something great about the job, right? A lot of people don't have time to make friends outside their world that has consumed them. And then the other thing you're saying about just having an idea of what you would do if you had to just bail tomorrow, just, just to have that as a mental buffer of like, okay, if I need to, I have these other skills. I think that just gives you enough mental freedom to kind of persevere because this is a job where there is a lot of uncertainty and it's not going to go away. That's part of the job. And Uh, So learning to navigate that and sit in it and feel comfortable in it. And it's part of the frog that you're going to face every day. Then um, I think you've given some really good techniques to kind of look at the good and then deal with the the things that aren't going to change about it, which is really helpful. Well, I think people ought to also meet people who have other jobs. Like I grew up, my parents were small business owners and they worked 60 to 80 hours a week. And if the business didn't make money one week, they didn't make any money at all. And like the, that, I just feel like my life is so much easier. My professional life, it's incredibly secure and so interesting. And I'm not taking that kind of financial risk all the time. So like, I feel really lucky to be where I am. Now that said, I think the a mistake to act like this, there are so many PhDs being trained at so few positions, right? And so, so much of it is luck and timing and all that. So it's really, that's the other reason it's really important to always have sort of this backup career. Like the critical thinking skills you gain in a PhD can be applied to so many different kinds of jobs. And we in the academy need to be doing a lot better job letting people sort of see that regardless of what they do. Like if you're going to go in the academy, I think it's good to know, like I could leave this and take those same skills and apply them in these three other different kinds of career paths. Or, you know, I don't work in the academy. I think that I can take those same skills and use them in these other ways and chart your own sort of impact trajectory more with more information than we're currently giving people. I think, I think the good news is there are people out there that are working on this problem in terms of like, yeah, I mean, there are more PhDs than, than academic positions. And we've, uh, we actually interviewed a group or a couple of ladies who, who are working on this problem on episode 14 of the, of the show. And the, the case isn't typically that people shouldn't be getting their PhDs at all. It's more that they can take this, these skills and this knowledge and reapply them in other areas that aren't necessarily just being, being an academic. So it's it's kind of exciting because you're like you're thinking about all these different. I I didn't mean to imply earlier that only smart people go. You know, it's all, all the smart yeah, people. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, certainly I'm not a tenured faculty member, so I'd be talking about myself too. So maybe I was just you know beating up myself. <laughs> I have um, I I guess I've trained twelve PhD students now and. Some of them are going to academia and a couple of them are professional data scientists and industry, uh, government jobs, sort of state agency and uh, academic jobs at both small colleges and, and research universities. And I, I see all of them having impact in really interesting ways. And 
that are each fulfilling for them. And to me, there's no difference in like what I feel is their success. Cause to me, their success is they came in saying, I want to do these kinds of things and they're doing them uh, in the venue that they're in. And to me, that's, that's what, that's what my job as a mentor is. Right. And it's really satisfying to see them kind of finding their way. It's great. That's so good. And then also you're using your platform to expand the definition of a scholar, right? So you're counting all of those people that you've trained to have these skills. Their brains are out there in the world, using them, applying them, moving needles, you know, making impacts. And it's, that's really fantastic. It's cool to see what they do, right? It's awesome. Yeah. It's, it's gotta be. So, I mean, I can only, um, Compare it to parenting, you know, where you you think, well, you learn really early how little control you have of the outcome. You're just you're just there to help (laughs) Um, and then uh, and set them up to succeed as much as possible. But then, you know, getting getting to help somebody on their trajectory and helping them define what success looks like for them. I think a really good message from kind of across all the different parts of this conversation has been that the success metrics seem to be based on the context of the human you're dealing with and what they want to do. And, and seeing that flexibility is a a real um, message. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, what does, what is it that you hope to accomplish with your life and how do we help each other get there? Right. That's, that should be really any interaction you're having collaboration, mentorship, peer interactions, right? That's the goal. And you, you should basically surround yourself with people that feel the same way. Things will work better for sure when that's the case. So one of the things that we do toward the end of these episodes is we, we have a light speed round. So we'll ask you a question and, and you know, do some quick responses. Uh, the first question that we have for you is what, what would you go back in time and tell the newly hired assistant professor, Emily Bernhardt, Yep. Oh, what would I tell? Oh my God. Just open ended. Yep. Okay. Um, it's okay to love the people that work with you. I love that. And I'm not allowed to uh, elaborate on that. No. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yes. Okay. Let's get all the wisdom. I actually, um, I was part of this Leopold uh, leadership training cohort right after tenure with a bunch of other people who were sort of immediately post tenure in environmental in environmental fields. It was amazing. And one of the things that, that that training program really did, I thought it was going to be about science communication. And it turned out it was all about introspection and what kind of human being are you and how do you interact with others. And one of the things that happened to me and many of the other women in that program is we all felt like our in growing as a scientist, as an academic, we had felt like we needed to be totally logical, unemotional people. And that sometimes if you could embrace like the, I'm actually a pretty empathetic person. And I think I like, I like thinking about human interactions, like bringing that and like acknowledging it and telling people that you care about them just makes you so stupid. Of course, how could you not know this, but it makes you so much better to work with. And so I would have been a better mentor for my early students if I had been more okay with telling them how much I cared about them. Wow. I love that that's what you're saying. And I I think about this a lot in just sort of feminist theory and how how it has impacted, you know, the past two or 3000 years of our lives or whatever, but (laughs) realizing how, I mean, there's no um, mystery to the fact that 
we've been sort of socialized that bringing emotion to the table is adding weakness, not strength. But I love that you're saying, no, no, that's, that's a strength. Our whole selves are part of this. And to your point that we came to this kind of career and it is all encompassing because it's, you know, something we're passionate about, then finding good ways to, to bring the humanist part of us to it can only strengthen the output. That's, that's a great thing to go back and say. Yeah. Empathy is so important and we don't, we don't value it as much as we should. Right. Not only allow, I mean, even in my language, maybe even just saying that I'm using words like allow rather than value, right? Like that. Um, I also can't help but think that it's amazing because so yesterday is the day that uh, when when this episode is is put out, it will have been a few weeks. But yesterday's the day that Mary Oliver passed away or what her her oh, passing yeah. was announced. And so ever so many of the things that you have said remind me of her of her poem in the the one line that it's really making me think of is, you know, tell me what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? And so much of the mentoring that you're talking about and the inclusion of, you know, uh, allowing yourself to love people that you work with just is, you know, that that's the kind of motivation that can keep people going through a hard frog to eat, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Frogs taste better with a little bit of love. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually wasn't familiar with Mary Oliver's poetry until, until, um, seeing all of her poetry on Twitter as people were celebrating her life. And yes, that, that line so resonated with me because it feels like so much of the leadership training that I got was really focused on that. And we don't spend enough time thinking about that. Um, how to, how to help people navigate and be intentional about what you're doing. Yeah. For sure. So next question. What is your what is your ideal size group? Postdocs, PhDs, masters, undergrads. Hmm. So right now I have um, four students, two postdocs, um, a couple of techs, and uh, we just accumulated five five undergrad researchers, and um, and that's that's okay. I like having maybe more than the group size. It's having like an age structure and experience structure, like having people that have been in the group for a while and people who are brand new and bringing fresh ideas and people who are just beginning to think about how much they like science and people who are getting ready to move on to uh, the next job. I really like that mix. And I really like taking advantage of how much this, the, my students and postdocs and undergrad, that's probably more important than the absolute size. But I don't think I really ever want to get, I think I once had 14 people for a year and that was a little, that was a little over the top for me. So kind of, I, I like where we are right now. It's pretty good. 10 to 12 seems like a good number. That seems good. Do you, um, so follow on to, to light speed, follow on. <laughs> do you, do you meet with each of them weekly or do you biweekly or do you do it by based on what they need? So I have a policy where, uh, new students I meet with once a week for the first year. Um, and then as they're finishing their dissertation, their last year, we meet once a week. And then most of the time, other than that, it's as needed and then project meetings. So Although I recently got some feedback from a, a postdoc who was leaving, Marie Simonen, was just going back to France. And she, I always like to get a little bit of feedback from people when they leave the lab. And she said that there were people who were intimidated to ask for meetings with me. And I realized, oh, I should, I should be more sort of, I should be pushing those meetings more from my end. Because I think you, it's hard to, to feel intimidating. It's hard to understand that 
don't feel intimidating. I'm not intimidated by myself. And so I think the older you get, the more you realize, you don't realize how, how distant you may seem to people if you don't make an effort on that. And so that's a, that's a little bit of good feedback I just got last week that I'm trying to think about the best way to make sure that's a barrier that I break down. I try to do that by being really like doing silly things with my lab, like making it really clear I don't take myself seriously, but that might not be enough. There may be some more things I need. That's to do. really smart. And I mean, I think what you said, the older you get to it's the great thing about being around a big mix of ages is that it, to us, it can feel like it, the age doesn't matter and it, maybe it doesn't matter to us. But, you know, I learn every year when the brand new fashion comes back in September and I'm like farther and farther from it. I'm like, oh, I'm older yeah. now yeah. and, and I, I am not one of the mix and they see us differently. So just being cognizant that that sneaks up on people and that you have to make space for them to approach you. That's smart advice. Good advice. And so I think that's maybe a good piece of advice is make sure you take advice from everybody in your group. They may not give it to you until they leave, but definitely take advantage. <laughs> Even when they're leaving, just like, okay, I really want to know what you think I could be better. Because we can all just get better. And what we need to do is changing through time, depending on who's in your group and who you're working with. So. That's fantastic advice to end on. Um, well, Emily, it was such a pleasure to spend this time talking to you. And I really appreciate you coming on and giving us all your insight. Well, my insight is collected from lots of people who've shared it with me. So it's just a random collection that people should take with a giant grain of salt. But I enjoyed this conversation as well. Thanks for listening to episode 25 of Helium Podcast. As usual, you can find the show notes at www.teamhelium.co slash episode 25. There we'll link to resources mentioned in the episode. We'll also have a full transcript there. You can download and read if you're interested in the transcript from this episode. We'd also love to hear from you on social media, either at Twitter at Helium Podcast or Instagram at Helium Pod. Please let us know what you think about this episode or if you have suggestions for future episodes. The music for this episode was provided as always by Michael Blake at mblakemusic.com. The episode was edited by Zach Hendren and produced by Christine Ogilvie Hendren and myself, Matt Hotze. Until next time, we hope your research makes an impact that changes the world.